Good morning slash afternoon slash evening. Welcome to the Caverns and Mice podcast, a perfectly passable China-Africa podcast. I'm your host, Winslow Robertson, and I will be joined shortly by our co-host, Lena Benabdella, a PhD student in international relations at the University of Florida, who will be here in maybe 20 minutes, and Yi-Ting Wong, our resident China sustainability specialist. Yi-Ting, how are you doing? I'm doing very well, thank you. I am happy that you are in D.C. because I think we should see each other <laughs> while you're physically in the city. I don't want to see your face, really. It's much better that we keep this distance. I get that a lot from a lot of my <laughs> China-Africa colleagues, so I completely understand. <laughs> Today's episode is brought to you by our sponsor, African Development Jobs. African Development Jobs, a site run by Nino Drew, seeks to connect development workers with professional development resources and work opportunities in Africa. On a quest to help diversify development, it highlights the voices and issues of Africans and the diaspora in the field. It is also the best site for finding employment in the development field in Africa that I know of. Today we are going to narrow our focus by looking at China-Uganda relations, thanks to the presence of a very special guest. On the pod today is Dr. Ward Warmerdam, who received his PhD from the International Institute of Social Studies in The Hague, and is an economic researcher at Profundo. Most recently, he has been working on Chinese wholesalers in Kampala, but his research broadly focuses on China's engagement with Africa, the lessons from China's own development experience, and how these inform China's aid principles and practices. He has published widely, but the piece that I think you our listener might be most interested in is having, giving, taking, lessons on ownership in China's domestic development and contributions of its engagement, published in the Forum for Development Studies in 2013. Before embarking on his PhD studies, Dr. Warmerdam lived in China for 10 years, running his own consultancy and language institute. Dr. Warmerdam, welcome to the pod. Uh, good afternoon. Thank you for having me. Sure. Is this your lunch break? Uh, no, it's my, the day I work at home. So. Ah. <laughs> yeah, it's easy to fit it in. Yeah. Excellent. Well, I'm I'm so happy we could we could make it, and I hope that we don't take away too much time from your work. Can you start by telling our audience a little bit about your research interests and what you work on in the vast field of China-Africa scholarship? Why the move from development to China-Uganda relations? Actually, my interest in in the China-Africa field is pretty much as broad as the field is itself. Um, maybe just a little bit narrower. I'm interested in various commodity chains, uh, particularly in coal, copper, timber, and essentially any other minerals and agricultural products. So that covers just about the whole gamut of, uh, of commodity chains. Um, I'm also very interested in in the Chinese companies that are active in Africa, what motivates them to go there, what do they do there, how do they interact with the local community, how do they interact with the local government, what kind of relations do they have for the Chinese government, how, if they develop, how do they develop, um, do they develop through, through expanding their, their current business uh, in terms of, you know, expansion of the manufacturing process or expansion, if we're talking about mines, are they expanding in uh, the mining sector or are they branching out into uh, other sectors? Are they diversifying? I'm also interested in other Chinese actors uh, in Africa uh, in general, so not just the companies, but also the 
the government officials, how they feel there, what they do there, what their role is, uh, how they see their role in terms of uh, coordinating or managing uh, Chinese companies uh, in Africa. I'm interested in CSR policies of Chinese companies and the practices uh, that, these, that these CSR policies will have. Also in the financing of uh, from Chinese financial institutions uh, directed towards Chinese companies in Africa. So do they do Chinese companies get financing from Chinese financial institutions? Well, the whole they do. Um, but what form of uh, financing do they get? Do they get loans? Um, are the Chinese financial institutions helping them with the, the underwriting of bonds and share issuances? Share issuances are mostly for listed companies. Uh, how much can they get? Uh, is it going to the parent company or is it going directly to the subsidiary? Uh, are there any any uh, criteria attached to these uh, to them? Uh, particularly ESG criteria attached to these mm -hmm. uh, these financings. So uh, it's a sort of sustainable finance element like you find with uh, many Western financial institutions. They have sector policies for mining, which uh, they say companies have to adhere to or meet certain criteria before they're uh, given financing. And the last thing that I'll mention that I'm interested in in the wide field of uh, China-Africa relations is uh, the issue of whether China's surplus capacity is a driver for their outward investment. So you see this, for example, with construction companies. Um, basically, the construction industry is saturated in China. There's so many, so many companies. Pretty much every province, town and village has its own construction company. And we see that a lot of the construction companies have already uh, started investing in Africa, for, for example, but also in Latin America and uh, also in Southeast Asia. But is this also happening in other sectors? For example, I can, uh, you can see this gradually happening in manufacturing, uh, but also I get the sense that this is starting to develop in the manufacturing of uh, renewable energy. Um, so, for example, for wind turbines and solar, uh, solar PV, uh, that industry also seems to be relocating from China to Africa. And that's something that really interests me. But the second question you asked on the move from, uh, from development to China-Uganda relations, it wasn't so much a move, um, and my analysis wasn't really so much on China-Uganda relations, but it was rather a sample survey of Chinese companies and Chinese actors in Uganda. So my, my PhD focused on China's development cooperation. It looked at China's own domestic development, its experience as, a, as an aid recipient, uh, its history as a foreign aid donor, which is very long. Uh, the PhD examined the contours of the, these developments, sought to identify how lessons from China's experience and, uh, of its own development and experience as an aid recipient were being put into practice. Um, so, as I said, I looked at China as a development donor. One of the main constants of China as a donor uh, was its principles of foreign economic relations. There have been slight changes over the over the many decades. So Joe and I built on the, the principles of peaceful coexistence in 1954, when he said this in 1962. Gao Zeyang, whose, um, whose principles have been erased from the Chinese literature, but who definitely uh, made had his own principles in the early 1980s, made a move away from this one-size-fits-all approach that Joe and I had and introduced management and operational elements, for example, into turnkey projects. That's why we have this build, operate, transfer uh, model that's uh, mm -hmm. being used now. So moving away from the build and transfer, which in a sense was a redefinition also of one of the key principles of non-interference. We can talk about that later if you like. One of the key principles that has never changed, at least not in, in rhetoric, is that of mutual benefits. 
And there's been a lot of studies on what this means, what the mutuality of these benefits are. But these studies have tended to be really macroeconomic in scope, or they've been focused on political or geopolitical aspects. And while those are very interesting, we wanted to actually get a more granular, granular analysis. We wanted to look at a, another aspect of, of this, so both economic and development cooperation in Uganda is what we select. And that's why we set out to do field work in Uganda. We interviewed Chinese companies, but also aid projects and Chinese uh, government officials. And among these, we actually found that uh, the Chinese wholesalers were very interesting, but they have nothing to do with my PhD. So this uh, this article is nothing to do with my PhD research, but, but just uh, something we found as, a, as an interesting side finding of what we were looking at in Uganda. That was a pretty circuitous way to answer that question. I like that. Okay. <laughs> <laughs> what about the wholesalers in particular interested you? Well, it was the there was many things about them that interested me. So interviewing all these other companies, um, sort of like really formal private uh, private operations like Huawei and ZTE, so big state-owned enterprises. They're all well established. And they, one of the questions in the survey was, do you guys have any problems here? What, what problems do you face? Do you have government support or how does the local government uh, treat you or you know, how do they approach you? And uh, then I went to James Street in Kampala and there was, I was surprised by how many Chinese faces I saw there. It's, um, yeah, there was, I would say about 30 to 40% of the faces that I walked past uh, were were East Asian, and about 10 to 20 percent were Southeast Asian, so India, Pakistan, and Bangladesh, and the rest were Ugandans. It was really busy at that street. It really reminded me of uh, of cities um, in in China, where you know this hustle and bustle and this loading up of trucks and and loading off of trucks and the noise and, the, and how dirty it was. It just really reminded me of China. And then I started talking to these wholesalers. I said, and just looking at some of them was I'll give you an example of, of one or one or two. So there was this guy who had basically a table outside um, outside of a building and he had like I don't know 10, 15 pairs of shoes on it. And this guy looked he, he didn't look very happy, but I started talking to him and I said, So what's your life like here and why are you here and when did you come? I said, yeah, I've been here for about a year, and all my my other colleagues, Chinese colleagues, have all been deported, and I'm just trying to sell these shoes before I go home. <laughs> yeah, that, that, then, that is pretty interesting. Yeah, and then there was this guy in the building, this old guy, and he was half blind, and his shop looked, I don't know how bare, this, this place had like a couple of shoes hanging off a wall and, and two or three t-shirts. And I said, so how long have you been here? And he said, I've been here about six months. And I said, how'd you come here? He said, well, you know, this guy said I could make a good future here. But in the end, all these people started stealing my stuff. And I just want to go home, but I don't have money to go home. And I said, wow, this is, uh, I felt really sorry for the guy. He was half blind. He, he could hardly, he, yeah, he didn't really look at me properly. I don't know he, if you could see where I was sitting. There was also this other guy there who um this very young guy really feisty um you know short uh, like from south to china 
would say about 160, 165, like really well built. And uh, I started talking with him about the shoes. His, his shoe shop was better stocked. And I said, well, some of the other guys have been uh, saying that, you know, one of the problems is that people steal stuff from them. He said, oh, that's not a problem. For me. Said, Why not? And then he got out a castle prod and he said, I got this to chase them away. And he said, oh, it's a bit odd. And he said, no, 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 I, I can show you how it works. And then he called his worker over and he said, let me show you. This is local Ugandan. I said, no, please, please just put the capital away. And I thought, these guys are, this is a really interesting bunch of people, like really diverse, facing lots of, you know, lots of issues. They, were, they said um, that many of the problems they faced were local government officials uh, picking them up, extracting bribes them, and then, then releasing them again. And many of them were... Only there for the short term, and and had felt that they were trying to make their. It had a bit of. Um, I'm not sure if this is a really appropriate analogy, but I, I get this. I got this sense that it, for them it was like, um, like how the early settlers in were in America or in New Zealand, uh, in New Zealand and Australia. They they felt that they were going to the new world and they were trying to make their fortune. And they had really high hopes. And then they came and and basically, you know. Their dreams weren't being met by their reality. Um, so I got this feeling that it was really bleak for them. And that, that made me like quite interested in them. So it's a really long answer again. I'm sorry. No, I, I, I enjoy the long answer. This pod is designed specifically for the long China Africa answer. Okay. Uh, so, uh, Ward, do you see, um, is there like a extended network, um, uh, that um, that help these people get to Uganda. Um, that maybe they have relatives already in Uganda that has sort of sold them a story of, of uh, you know, like a, you know, if you go to the west of the U.S., there's just you know, golden opportunities waiting for you. Yeah, I got that sense. Yeah, um, pretty much all of them made a comment that someone, either in their extended family or one of their friends, had said they should come, but it was like really informal networks that didn't mm-hmm. lead to anything. A lot of them were, yeah, I wouldn't say lured, but I did get that impression a little bit <laughs> to, to Africa to make uh, to make money. But then when I looked at the other, like more established private uh, enterprises, when they had more formal networks, like you have these uh, business associations, um, like Shanghui, uh, they were they were much better organized and these companies were much better established they you know they had they didn't just have a, a table outside of a building they really had like like a building that was theirs and they had employees and they're really like uh, like were really formalized so i think as business networks are important to get them but for mm-hmm. the for the wholesalers for these traders it was really informal and some guy had i can i could almost imagine that that they were sitting around their table at uh like uh, for for the Chinese New Year for Spring Festival, and some, they were talking amongst each other and drinking some baijiu and, and saying, you know, oh, I have a cousin over there in Uganda and he's he's telling me he's making a lot of money and the guy said, oh man, I earn some money and maybe, I mean that's the picture I had in my mind, um, but it was really informal and but a lot of the people I spoke to, like the old guy also, he he'd retired in. Uh, in China, but his pension wasn't enough to really pay for his his daily life. He couldn't really get around on his pension, so he thought, 
I'll go to Uganda. This guy promised me that I'll make a lot of money in Uganda. And so I'll go to Uganda and, and earn a lot of money and I, I can live off that for the rest of my life. And in the end, he had all his stuff stolen and, and it was unfortunate. And there was another guy who was selling, uh, he was uh, in a hardware store, uh, selling, well, selling hardware to wholesale. And I said, so why, why did you come? And I felt so sorry for this guy. He said, uh, well, they, um, I was made redundant. At a state-owned enterprise uh, that I was working at in uh, Georgetown province, and he said, "And now I don't have enough money, and the, the job prospects in, in China weren't good, you know, because uh, uh-huh. his level of skills wasn't good enough to uh, to get a job very quickly." And he said, "And then I heard of this opportunity to come to Uganda and make money." And and I said, "So you're making enough money?" He says, "No, I, I'm not. I don't really feel as if I'm welcome here. I don't feel safe here." And basically want to go back to my family well that segues pretty well into our second question that i hope lena can answer lena how are you doing well how are you Warren? hi lena very hey. well and you hey. yeah very well it's been a while it's a bit of a coincidence that you uh, were bringing someone to the airport. The last time I saw you, you brought me to the airport. I was bringing you from the airport, right? Yeah. <laughs> That's interesting. That's true. But uh, yeah, to actually to um, to add a um, question to uh, Iting's, um, what's the six, uh, safety and security situation like for Chinese community and these enterprises in Uganda? I mean, how safe is it there? Or do you have any comments about that? Yeah. Um, a lot of the companies that I interviewed, apart from the wholesalers, actually said that they came to Uganda because of the, the economic and political stability and the general safety. Mm-hmm. Um, one of them, I think, was comparing it to his time in uh, the DRC, the east of the DRC. So you can imagine that he says it's much safer. But also they said in comparison to Kenya, the crime rates were much lower. And also in comparison to South, uh, South Africa. But they, they, were, they said they were often targeted um, by, uh, by, like for daylight robberies. And they said, admittedly, it's because we're known to carry cash with us, a lot of cash with us, because we don't want to put it in the bank. Mm-hmm. The thing. So, but particularly among the wholesalers, they didn't feel safe. Um, they really didn't feel safe. And the state-owned enterprises, obviously, they had security guards. And one of the Chinese enterprises, private enterprises that I interviewed, he actually... He actually saw this as a great market opportunity. This is a guy called Zhang. His group is called Zhang's group. He, he was engaged in many different sectors. He had a bakery. He had a hotel. He had a Korean restaurant. He had a... Um, wait, wait. A, a Korean restaurant? Yeah, his wife was a Korean ethnic minority. <laughs> uh, he had a television assembly uh, line. And he had a security company. Mm-hmm. Uh, the interest, I thought he was a really interesting example because he started off as a trader. He started off as one of these wholesalers, selling, uh, started off selling light bulbs, didn't make a lot of money. Then he started selling bikes, that made him some more money. Then he started selling clothes, that made him some more money. And in the end, he has this, this huge empire. Uh, and one of them was the security company called Hash uh, Security. And he was the security company for the Chinese embassy, the, the economic and commercial council's office, for most of the state-owned enterprises I went to, for many of the private enterprises I went to. And he'd been spread out throughout the whole country. He has 2,000 employees. Um, and uh, I think 98% of them were Ugandans. He only had a couple of, uh, of Chinese employees. 
And so this is, you're saying that basically he is coming very fresh and new to this business. It's not something that he was trained to do or had experience doing, you know, in China. So this is definitely some sort of new opportunity that opened up to him, you yeah. know, based on his work in Uganda. That's pretty Yeah, just, he pretty identified this market opportunity. He, the other interesting thing was he started because his dad came, uh, worked as, in a state-owned enterprise, a Chinese state-owned enterprise in Uganda. And he was with his dad, and he, I think he was uh, he studied in France, somewhere in Europe. And he he came back to visit his dad in Uganda. And said, "Dad, I think I want to to see if I can make my fortune here." And his dad said, "Sure," and gave him a loan of I don't know how much money, and that's how he started his uh, his empire. Interesting. Ward, I'm not sure if you have discussed this before I joined in, but uh, so what other challenges? Perhaps um, some of these private, you know, businesses and businessmen and women kind of face in Uganda, besides sort of the, the the things you mentioned about, you know, carrying cash and the usual robbery and 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 you know, small security issues there. Um, yeah. Like in terms of legal paperwork and entry or ease of access, you know, uh, in, in 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 for legal paperwork or for I don't know, um, ease of access to having uh, permits for you know, owning businesses and all of that. What's what's your impression of that situation? Yeah, there is a number of, of things there. So um, one of them was is a lack of clarity for them. The Chinese came, particularly these wholesalers, um, they were very ill-informed about what was needed uh, to reside and work legally in Uganda. Uh, so many of them came on tourist visas and then started working where they came on tourist visas and then started an enterprise. But legally, if they want to start an enterprise or work, they have to apply for either a work permit or a permit to, to establish a, an enterprise in Uganda before they go. And, and they didn't know this. And possibly it's because of, you know, like I said, sitting around the dinner table eating eating jowls and then drinking paizo and then hearing that you can make your, your money there and then you just go to get a, get a passport and fly to Uganda. So this may be one of the issues. Another is that um, I got the sense that the, um, that the Ugandan government wasn't being particularly clear about it. Um, and I'm not sure why. I, I, I got some of them said that it's possible, some of the Chinese enterprise said it's possible that the, the government is not being very clear because then they can exploit the, the lack of clarity. They can arrest us, put us in jail and say, you know, you guys don't have a proper business license and then extract bribes from us and release us again. Um, but I think that's the main issues are mm -hmm. regarding their work permits, um, their their uh, permits for establishing business and, and their visas. But for all companies I interviewed, these were issues, but particularly for the, the wholesalers, it was the lack of clarity. You know, the, the state-owned enterprises, they have this this clarity already. They have their local Ugandan employees who are very clear about the legal aspects. Mm -hmm. But they were still, they were also actually still facing difficulties getting Chinese employees to uh, to, to have a work permit to work in, in Uganda. Um, what I am um, curious uh, of your reflection on, uh, you know, Howard French's book, China's Second Continent, which in which I think you you guys sort of look at um, similar processes of individual migrants um, coming to establish their business or are trying to carve out a new um, piece of living for themselves. Um, 
but I guess, you know, what, what curious to your thoughts on, um, Howard French's conclusion in the end, um, about how this all falls into a sort of a broader, um, tradition of foreign powers, um, um, in, the, in acting in the sort of neo-colonial way. Yeah. I have to make the embarrassing, uh, I have to admit very embarrassingly that although I've met Howard French and think he's a great guy, I haven't read his book. Mm-hmm. Uh, but if um, you're familiar with his arguments. Also, uh, familiar, yeah. also, I don't think, you know, the argument that neocolonialism is, is something that's, it's, uh, it's nice to put in the, into media and it, it sells newspapers and magazines and probably books. But I don't think it's it's fair to say that uh, China's relations with with uh, Africa are neo-colonial. It it sort of assumes um, a, a very official structure to that kind of relation. Um, we can say maybe in terms of what China is exporting and then what it's import uh, what it's uh, what it's importing from Africa in terms of natural resources and then it's exporting to to Africa in terms of manufactured goods or processed goods. If that's considered to be a neo-colonial relationship, then we can say that every single country that has, pretty much every single country that has trade relations with Africa has a similar situation. And it's, uh, it's because of the lack of development of, for example, refineries and processing industries in Africa. We can blame the Chinese or we can blame the Americans or the French or the, or the British for not developing these, these uh, industries. But we can also blame the the local African governments. I think that you know, if if we believe in the agency of an African country or an African government, I think we, we can should be able to describe that kind of responsibility. If you look at Sudan and its its uh, oil refining industry, its oil industry, it was the Chinese who helped to establish uh, a refinery order, and that was one of the criteria that the Sudanese government made. They said, "You guys can invest in our oil. That's great." There's a lot of you know there was increasing a decreasing interest uh, because of uh, the political situation there but if you want to invest in our oil then also help us develop an oil refinery you need to establish this value added element mm-hmm. and i think government uh, african governments can do a lot more um and in their negotiations with countries now particularly since a lot of these governments are much more legitimate um and they're much more uh, much more well respected um and because of the different players that there are now, you have the Chinese and the Americans, and the, and the Indians and the Malaysians. You have so much choice now that in your, the African governments in their negotiations can try to demand more in terms of uh, creating a value added level uh, in Africa. And if I might interject, uh, I had Professor French on the pod uh, to discuss his book and his neo-colonial argument is pretty different than uh, a, a generalized media narrative of Chinese neocolonial ambitions in, in Africa. He, he's not just looking at it in terms of power relations, which anybody trained in an American university would be very well versed in. He's also looking at it in comparison to, um, to a very particular type of 19th century um, European set of actors operating in Africa, so not just the military, but um, traders and, and missionaries. So these were not necessarily handmaidens of the, like, operating in, in 
and what is that Nigeria uh, a, a trader or a missionary was not a, uh, an agent of the British state they were not told hey go make money here or go proselytize here but as part of a broader network of actors operating in an area that changed the power dynamic to the point that it became colonial now it's so I just wanted to lay that out there. It's a very particular type of argument that a lot of people don't don't put out there. Not that I don't think your answer was good or insufficient. <laughs> but I think <laughs> the, the term colonial is very dangerous. And and however, you, oh, it's a it's a fraught term. It's a really loaded. Speaking about power dynamics here, Ward, um, I'd like to ask you a question that is perhaps a little bit. Speculative, but it could, but it doesn't have to be totally so. Do you have any comments or observations about this, the, the possible potential impact of the economic slowdown, you know, and this shockwave? Yeah, um, I think you've dropped away a little bit, but I, I think I got your, your question. But the economic slowdown in China is obviously going to lead to to a slowdown in its trade and FDI, and we see that already. Um, there's been reports. Of it's 40% in value. It's uh, partly because of China's decreased demand for uh, for, for natural resources to fuel its manufacturing industry. That's partly due to decreased demand also um, from, from its main trade partners, but also its decreased demand domestically. There's been a, a shift in China's uh, economic focus, uh, the emphasis of it, of how it needs to drive its economy from export oriented to uh, to its domestic market and that's going to take time and it's going to have you know every transition takes time but in with China anything that happens it's always big because if it's such a big country it's got a huge economy so any change is big and the impacts are going to seem to be significant but I think recent reports from the IMF have also said that the the slowdown in China hasn't led to a very significant slowdown in Africa and it's partly because, you know, we, we being China-Africa researchers, we, we like to think of China as the most important actor in Africa. It's not necessarily. It depends on how you look at it and where you're looking, what country you're looking and what what part of it, what commodity, what value chain. You know. So if you look at FDI, then there's other actors that are more important. So there's going to be a decrease in China's investments in Africa in the near future, probably, and trade has already decreased. But you see also that there is other things changing in China, which could possibly lead to a slightly later stage increased investment in Africa. For example, China has recently said, and Etienne, correct me if I'm wrong, that it's uh, not going to approve any new coal mines for the next five or ten years, which is for the for the near future maybe it's okay. It's meeting its demand already a little bit domestically, but there's going to be. I assume an increase in investments in uh, in coal mining abroad. And you see this already with Chinese investments in coal mining, Australia, in Indonesia. Um, but also, uh, I recently looked at a Chinese mining company in Kenya called Shenzi Meijin, Shenzi Mining, which is which is interesting because it's going to get it's going to need to get its coal from somewhere else. So developments in you know, we, we can say that that while there is an economic slowdown, other things are going to happen. So really uh, see what the future is going to be there. But maybe it's, you know, how important the world considers China and Africa is going to become more normal. Like how we, we consider other actors.
I mean, I hope you still have a job, Dr. Warmerdin. I hope it doesn't become so normal that people aren't in awe of the China-African relationship and come to you for expertise. Well, that's why I got a job in another company. <laughs> <laughs> and I just realized I totally neglected to ask you about your paper examining Chinese wholesalers in Kampala, which you presented at the University of Florida last April, which is where your connection with Lena comes from. If not too late, can you give a brief overview of the main question and findings of that paper? Yeah, I think uh, we've already discussed some of the things uh, in it, um, but I can give a, like a brief overview again. It's, um, so the main question was trying to understand these Chinese wholesalers in, in Kampala. What, who are they? What, what were the problems that, that they were facing? How did they come? Why did they come? What were they doing? Some of the main findings we've already discussed, uh, uh, but they're active in many branches, but apparently not in the pharmaceuticals, which I thought was quite interesting. And I think what would be really interesting would be to go back there and then to not only interview the Chinese companies there, but to interview the Southeast, uh, the South, yeah, the Southern Asian ones, the, the Indians and the Bangladeshis and the Pakistanis, who seem to be more in the pharmaceutical. So is there a complementarity between um, the two kinds of traders? Uh, most of most of these wholesalers arrived recently. They didn't. They can't leave. They didn't really plan to expand. They arrived on tourist visas. Um, that's small investments, very small turnovers. The very small workforces, maybe one or two Chinese colleagues, if they had any, and then at least one, uh, not necessarily, but just one or two locals, if they had any. And this was mostly for translation and sales. They were not in it for the long long term. They were having a lot of difficulties. Many were actually there illegally because they had overstayed their visas, and uh, yeah, well, they were they were facing problems of renewing them or getting uh, work permits. There was no help from the Chinese government. There was no help from the, the more established uh, business associations. They, they felt that they were being unfairly treated. They felt they were being actually exploited by the local police and local government officials who were getting bribes. They didn't feel safe and they didn't feel welcome. Um, it's a very bleak picture. Yeah. And what about their sourcing? How does one become a Chinese wholesaler in Kampala? Where where do their products come from? Um, well, stating the obvious, they come from China. <laughs> and how do they get them? Yeah, I spoke to a couple about where they get their stuff from, and some of them say, um, well, we have, as it's very typical for the Chinese, we have a brother or sister, which can also mean cousin or nephew or whatever. Um, in China, who uh, who has a factory or works with a factory or who knows a factory, and then they just ship it over. And um, if you came to China, you see these these wholesale uh, markets a lot. So I can imagine that not all of them are going directly to the factories. It depends on whether or not they had were able to develop these connections and how much they were able to sell. You know, if you if you're only able to sell one box of shoes a, a week, then uh, I don't think many factories would be willing to. Uh, to sell you a box of shoes at wholesale price and just go to the wholesale market. Overall, what are the contours of the China-Uganda relationship? Can you extrapolate from what you saw regarding the, the wholesalers or the field research you did prior to that and talk about China-Uganda? Yeah, this is difficult because I didn't really look at it. I didn't really look at that, that, that issue of um, the contours of the relationship between, because what, what you're asking here is more at the political level. I didn't really look at that. Um, so I, I'd rather not answer because in case I say something that's completely wrong. 
I'm just going to assume it's a win-win, mutually beneficial relationship. Oh, yeah. Like Always. all China-Africa relationships. Yeah, definitely. <laughs> and they're not interfering in each other's uh, affairs, and they're respecting each other's state and sovereignty. And... It's, a, it's a honeymoon. Yeah. What, what can I say? Yeah. I think it's, it's different, though, if you compare it to, to countries which are more... Um, more proactive in their relations. I felt that in many ways, Museveni is, uh, is less proactive. He's more like, you know, everything's going okay for him and his family, so it's not that good. Um, whereas in Botswana, Malawi, um, the governments were trying to, were having much more uh, stronger negotiations with, with uh, the Chinese government about what their company, what Chinese companies were doing in, in their countries and how they were allowed to be doing these things. Um, don't forget that you know, oil is currently is recently, relatively recently, been found in, uh, in Uganda. So that's also going to start shaping the relationship. Hopefully, at these oil prices, a, a Chinese company can buy a block very cheaply. Doesn't have to do anything with it; just buy the block. Yeah, um, they were actually in a, in a joint venture with uh, Tullo and what the other one? I think a friend, one of the French ones. Oh, Elf, is that it? I don't oh, we'll see. Yeah. yeah. So this is also interesting. And was, uh, recently I just had a look to see how, because it's uh, China's national offshore uh, oil corporation, CNUC. They've, they've got that joint venture. Um, I was looking at their website in Uganda, and they have now three, three or five scholarships, uh, two for uh, master's students one uh, and one for a PhD in, uh, in engineering, in oil engineering. For specifically for the Ugandans, which I think was also one of the interesting things that I noticed when I was looking at Huawei and ZTE, for example. Really, they want to develop local talent and local uh, capabilities. So they will send the students to China for studying. Yeah. yeah. Hmm. Finance them completely, and I think I didn't really read into the terms of, of you know, did, did this PhD then have to go back and work for CNUC? I wasn't sure on that. Um, but with Huawei, for example, they had two kinds. They had the ones that they were, uh, they expected them to go and work for Huawei, but this was, this, um, they were being sent to Kenya for training, um, in, in either Kenyan universities or in a, in a Huawei training center in China. So TE also, but it was not for masters or PhDs. It was more, you know, for technical capacity training. So do you think, um, I guess what, what is the, Ugandan um, investment environment um, look like in the eyes of the Chinese investors, you know, big, both individuals and some of the bigger companies. Um, do they, uh, and, and I guess it's another question is, um, has there been, I mean, overall sort of stability in a, in a country which has been pretty stable and with a, now, Museveni running the fifth turn or something yeah. <laughs> of presidency. Um, so, yeah. yeah, just um, I guess curious about the macro um, uh, macroeconomic. Yeah, that, one that of the you, things. Mm-hmm. One of the things they like, that, or a number of things that the Chinese investors like, is the fact that it's relatively economically and politically stable compared to uh, countries around it. Um, if you look at more okay, the exclusion of Kenya and Tanzania, you know, there's already a lot of Chinese companies in Kenya. 
um, but in comparison to South Sudan and Congo. So they felt that this was a good place to be in terms of political and economic stability. But the other thing that they liked is that they could repatriate their profits, which um, was something they said was, which Amanda actually said was the reason they didn't go to Tanzania, because um, they couldn't repatriate their profits if it's too much growth. Um, so they felt that in terms of that, it was easier in, uh, in Uganda, but they had problems with, for example, the shilling dollar exchange rate fluctuation, which is, they, they felt that was really difficult for them to do business like that. Um, and uh, many of the country uh, companies that I inter many of the slightly larger established private enterprises, um, they started either in real estate in uh, in Uganda because they felt that, that was a better way to to uh, to to treat their their profit, put it somewhere you know where they were pretty sure the prices were going to rise, or they uh, started investing in Chinese enterprises in China. So we found um, with two companies, they said that they made an, or three, three companies they made medicine. One was uh, a furniture shop and one was a hotel, which is part of a group, I think, more informally. And they'd, in, they'd started investing in hotels, in the hotel stock, investing in hotels in China. Pharmaceutical enterprise actually bought up part of its parent uh, company, um, and the furniture shop started investing. He, they didn't really tell me clearly, but they also made investments in China because they felt that was uh, a more stable investment business practice. Thank you so much for for that detailed answer. We are we've kept you on uh, quite a bit, so we're going to move on to recommendations, if that's okay. Uh, Dr. Warwadam, do you have any recommendations for our listeners? Um, obviously, this podcast. <laughs> <laughs> oh, your check is in the mail, Dr. Warwadam. Your check is in the mail. Great, thank you. Um, and the China Africa, uh, China Africa Project podcast. Yeah, that's right. Yeah. Eric Olano, Dr. Kobus van Staden. Yep. Yeah, they're great. But also, something that might be of interest to the road initiative. The impact of that on China economic, uh, China and Africa relations. Are you wait? Are you recommending to learn more about One Belt One Road or to in uh, research it? I think that's that could be a really interesting area of research. What what that means and how African countries are going to you know under the umbrella of the the One Belt One Road initiative, how they're going to fill that in. A lot of a lot of China Africa folks are starting to to focus on that and um and the and the and the folks over at China Africa blog um. Mort Weigel and Alex uh, Demasi are, are starting to look into that. But yes, that is all China Africa people take note, and that's also probably where money is going to be concentrated for funding yeah. for the next <laughs> however many years. Excellent. Okay, three recommendations. I like it. And um, Lena, I'm not sure, has enough reception to give a recommendation at this moment, so I'll see what we can do later. Uh, Eating, do you have a recommendation for the, our listeners? Sorry, um, no, I, I, I'm good today. Thank you. Okay, and then I have a recommendation on, um, uh, I've got to get the exact name of the article. So there was a really good piece on the Financial Times um, writ, uh, published earlier this week 
called Tokyo Takes on Beijing in Africa, claiming quality over speed by John Aglianby. And it's a really interesting piece, really well reported. There's a um, talking about a few generalizations of, of China, Africa, and, and Japan and, and Africa. And the reason I, I enjoyed it, not just because the, the argument was kind of interesting, uh, there's an accompanying video that, that I thought was well made, and it has some quotes for some, some very smart people, including uh, Professor Deborah Brottingham and Ali Khan Sachu. Yeah, and it just, um, I, I think, a strong piece, and something to keep in mind, as, as Dr. Warmerdam points out, there are more actors in Africa besides China, and it behooves us to learn about as many actors as possible and the and interplay of these folks operating in, in an African country and the agency of any given African country. So that's my recommendation. Read that piece. Before we sign off, how do people find you on the internet, Dr. Warmerdom? Do you have a website or a Twitter account that you would like to share with us? Um, I don't have a Twitter account, um, but I recommend the Profundo website. We often put a, um, updates our research on there, so anything we do, which includes China-Africa stuff, sort of sustainability things that you guys might be interested in. So you can find us there. Excellent. And Yiting, what about yourself? Um, I can be found on Twitter at um, Dao of the Pool, D-A-O-O. F T H E P O O H. That's the a Winnie the Pooh Pooh. Yeah, the better kind, the Dow of the, <laughs> the sophisticated kind of pool. <laughs> the sophisticated kind of pooh, yes. And I myself can be found on calriesrice.blogspot.com and www.calriesrice.com, the latter site housing my fledgling China African consultancy. In addition, my Twitter handle is at Winslow underscore R, and I. Tweet about China Africa news, events, opinions, and arcana. Um, and a, a, a few, there were a few One Belt One Road things that I tweeted about this week. So if you're interested in that, Ooh, um, I should have a look. You should have a look. That's about it for today's episode. We would like to thank uh, Dr. Warmerdam for joining us this afternoon from Amsterdam or The Hague. Where, where are you actually calling us from? Right in the middle of the two. Okay, I my I I've exhausted my entire knowledge of of the the geography of the Netherlands. So, calling us from the Netherlands. Um, thank you so much for for making the time. Thank you for having me. We'd also like to thank African Development Jobs. This podcast can be found on SoundCloud, Stitcher, TuneIn Radio, Double Twist, and iTunes. We are also teaming up with WTND Community Radio for Macomb, Illinois, to share a podcast. We would also like to thank Mighty Michael Pulse Recordings for composing the theme song. And thank you, dear listener, for giving us your time. Take care.